0: Well, thanks, uh, Jamie and Janae and Ingrid for uh, leading us in worship today. Uh, good to be with you live and in person here, and I know we have folks online as well. Uh, I should say good to be back with you. I was gone last uh, Sunday. It's the last of our my wedding weekends. I have a son who's 25, and so it's right at that demographic point where buddies of his are getting married. So I've my sharing for uh, the summer is my two wedding weekends are behind me now. No more weddings, that, at least that I've been invited to. Uh, and uh, I will be more stable uh, for the remainder, at least physically uh, stable for the remainder uh, of my time with you while, remember, uh, Travis and his family are on sabbatical and I hope you are remembering them in your prayers. We want uh, the Fletcher family to experience God's rest and renewal and blessing and just uh, come back to you in early September, all fired up for, for ministry and, and to uh, do life with you guys. Uh, but you'll have me for a few more Sundays until that time. Hey, this morning we continue with the summer sermon series on the parables of Jesus, the parables of Jesus. And just a reminder uh, to us, Jesus was fully capable of doing what we might call very straightforward or didactic teaching. Think of the Sermon on the Mount. It's three chapters in Matthew, and there are no parables in there. He's just stating God's truth in a very straightforward Manner, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, and so on. Uh, so Jesus was very capable of teaching and preaching in a, in a direct, didactic, sort of straightforward way. But he also loved the use to use parables, these kind of short fictions, these short little stories uh, that. Uh, have a kind of indirect quality to them. In other words, Jesus would let loose with a parable, and uh, you had to kind of think about it, especially, and I'm going to make the case, that his parables were very much, much aimed at a certain audience, that he was strategic in his use of parables. And that's why, and I wanted to just kind of remind you of this, I believe I said it when I... Uh, preached on a parable earlier this summer. Uh, Context is super important for us in understanding the parables of Jesus, the setting or the situation into which Jesus spoke. And when we forget context, if we just sort of lift the parable out, we risk turning the parables of Jesus into kind of a New Testament version Version of Aesop's fables, uh, just kind of a nice story that ends with, and the moral of the story is, and they, it's just sort of floating up in the air, a kind of a moralism. I would argue, and maybe some of my fellow pastors would disagree with me, disagree with me on this. I believe that parables of Jesus are very context and setting specific. They're like darts that Jesus was throwing, not just a, a nice story that sort of floated up in the air. Context, uh, very important, and almost the opposite of Aesop's fables. Uh, again, very audience-specific, issue-specific. So let's look at the context of the parable that uh, Jamie read just a few, minutes ago, and I think we'll see, you'll see, I hope, uh, what I'm getting at here, in the opening verses of chapter 14, we picked it up well into chapter 14, but if you look at the opening verses, there are just some key elements there that kind of frame the giving of this parable. We're told it's the Sabbath, and right there, you know, if you're a reader of the New Testament and reader of the Gospels, Sabbath issues were a huge part of Jesus' ministry and conflict uh, around Sabbath questions. We're going to see that today. We're told that Jesus went to dine with a ruler of the Pharisees. So the setting for the parable of the great banquet is a banquet, right? They're at table having having a meal together, and the Pharisees, remember, were kind of the earnest guardians of uh, religious orthodoxy. They were like the religious establishment. And we were, were told in these opening verses of 14 that these Pharisees and the others who were gathered were watching Jesus carefully. Watching Jesus carefully. Now, remember, we know the whole story. This is stating the obvious, but sometimes it's good to state the obvious. We read the New Testament from 2,000 years later. We know the whole story, and we go back and we you know, read a gospel story. If we just went back to the time of the, uh, this gathering that's represented in chapter uh, 14 of Luke, this meal that Jesus is sharing with the Pharisees, we'll have a better sense of the dynamics here. Remember, it's this Jesus who is from the rural north. He wasn't from Jerusalem. He was from kind of the hinterlands. And he was, the Pharisees were hearing that he was doing and saying these absolutely remarkable things, and that he was attracting quite a following. There was buzz about Jesus. And so they invite uh, Jesus, the Pharisees and lawyers do. They invite him to a meal, and there's this odd phrase, and they were watching him carefully. See, I think they were asking themselves, and I think it was the strategy behind, well, let's invite him to a meal, Who is this guy? What's he all about? Uh, Into this dinner scene, so imagine you're at a dinner party, maybe semi-formal, I actually don't know exactly how formal the, the meal would have been, but into this banquet, large meal scene, appears a man with dropsy. Now, dropsy is like a chronic swelling disease. I mean, it's, I think it was painful and and et cetera. It's not a term we use a lot today. Um, and Jesus asks the Pharisees, as this man appears in the dining area, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Is it lawful to heal this suffering man on the Sabbath? And the Pharisees and lawyers remain silent. Jesus proceeds to heal the man. And then Jesus asks a second question. So they wouldn't respond to the first one Is it lawful to heal? He then heals, and then he says to them, if any of you have a donkey or an ox, and then in some translations it will say, son, who falls into a well on the Sabbath, would you pull him out? And they're silent again. They don't know what to say. So there's our context. Yes, it's a meal, but it's a meal with this kind of dramatic uh, twist to it, a theological twist concerning Sabbath. What is Sabbath? Concerning God's love and care for people. How is that expressed? When is that expressed? Really, it gets at the nature of God and what, what God wants from his people. The Pharisees, remember, they were earnest and God-fearing people. They had just, it seems, looking back, the Gospels support this notion. They had just narrowed things. They had narrowed things in a kind of reductive way that created an environment of legalism and exclusion. Whereas Jesus' ministry was all about the gracious and the generous love of God and inclusion. And so now our parable... And the imagery of the, the feast or the banquet. Uh, Jesus, in verses 12 through 14, has just said that we humans should be godlike in our love and generosity. When we give a feast, for example, we should invite those who can never repay us, not just our friends or not just important people who might then invite us to their party. So, we're to reflect the sheer gift, the sheer grace of God. And then, someone sitting at the table, so a lawyer or one of the Pharisees, when he heard Jesus say this, let loose with a beatitude. This is a beatitude. Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. Are you familiar with T ball? the little kids, you know, they put the ball on the tee, like a golf tee, but it's higher, and the kid gets the bat, <laughs> ball not moving, and most kids, I, th- I think it's safe to say, can at, le- at least make some contact with that ball. And some kids, you know, just cream it. In other words, it's designed to be an easy hit. I think this Pharisee expressing this beatitude This is kind of t t-ball for Jesus. I think he loves this statement because he just takes off, he takes off with it. He says a man gave, speaking of feasts uh, and eating bread in the kingdom of God, a man gave a great feast. As uh, Jamie read, a man gave a great feast, invited many, but those invited when it came time for the feast had all kinds of excuses why they couldn't make it. So the giver of the feast had his servants go out and round up what we today might call street people. Just get anybody and bring them in. Seat them at the table. And the servants did this and they said to the master, there's still room. And he said, well, go go out in the countryside. Go to the highways and the hedges. There's a great old gospel tune about the highways and the hedges go out go out there so that my house will be full I want people at this feast I don't care who they are yes I invited that first group and they turned it down then we'll fill it up with other folks and this, I think, is a, really a beautiful picture of a couple of things, each of which are kind of fit with the context here. The first is the generosity of the host. The generosity of the host. And the second is the importance of human response to that generosity. So the generosity of the host and the importance of responding to that generosity the generosity of the host. Remember, the Pharisees were troubled by the folks that Jesus was hanging out with. They thought if he truly was of God and righteous, he would know that many of his followers were very much unrighteous and were sinners and would not, he would not be associating with them. But there, that judgment, again, would be based on a too narrow a view of the nature of God and of God's love and God's righteousness. In fact, back to the context, remember the Pharisees had narrowed things to a degree that healing a human being, the man with dropsy, a child of God, healing that man on the Sabbath. On the Sabbath was the big deal, not the man's need for healing and the fact that Jesus healed him. It's like they're totally missing the point. The man had a deep need. The man was loved by God, and Jesus powerfully expressed that love. Yes, it was on the Sabbath. And the lawyers and Pharisees focus on the, on the, on the Sabbath part and wonder, is that a, like a form of work? Is he breaking Sabbath law? Jesus' action obviously contradicts them on that point. And Jesus once put it this way in responding to the Pharisees about Sabbath stuff. It was a different story but he pointed out that they had lost fact lost sight of the fact that the sabbath you remember this quote the sabbath was made for man for humans not humans for the sabbath the sabbath was meant to be a blessing to humans not to become the focus a focus in a kind of legalistic way to cause human suffering So the parable, the generous host wants to feed his guests. We would say God loves people, all people, and will do whatever it takes to bestow his love and blessing on those created in his image. This is the issue between Jesus and the Pharisees. The Pharisees, in their legalism, had narrowed God's love to a select few. Their view of God's of God and God's love had become exclusive. They knew who was in and who was out. Jesus comes along and blows that up. Another quote from Jesus, "The Son of Man came to seek and save Who? Anybody know how it ends? The lost. His mission was exactly toward those who were thought of by the Pharisees as the outsiders, as the unrighteous, as the sinners, the lost. What qualifies us to be a part of God's family is not our righteousness it's our brokenness and recognizing recognizing our own broken, brokenness god is generous in his love for undeserving broken people when i was in high school and college i was very anti christian my folks were wonderful people. It's, this isn't a reflection on them. I take full respons- responsibility for my, my attitude back then. I thought faith was stupid. I thought only an unthinking person would have faith. I had, in high school, I had friends who joined Young Life, and I could not believe it. I just thought, you guys, are you complete morons? You actually believe that stuff. You actually read the Bible together. In college, I had an atheist uh, philosophy professor who would probably get in trouble, honestly, nowadays, because he would identify Christians in the class. He would ask, do we have any Christians here? and would proceed to ruthlessly challenge and dismantle their faith. I loved it. I just thought, this is great. I absolutely agree with this guy. But underneath my sort of bravado and BS and frat lifestyle, something else was going on. If I was honest, I would say, I would have said, I felt empty inside. I was experiencing firsthand what Pascal calls the God-shaped vacuum. You've probably heard that expression. It's a great quote. If I would have been on my game, I would have had it printed in the bulletin because it's a fabulous quote. Pascal wrote, there's a God-shaped vacuum in the heart of each person Which cannot be satisfied by any created thing, but only by God, the Creator, made known through Jesus Christ. That God shaped vacuum. To make a long story short, I began to question my own atheism. I began to ask questions of friends I knew were Christians. I began to attend Bible studies felt very awkward, and read, read Christian books. And that process, I'm, and I'm very much condensing what was a longer process, kind of brought me to a place of realizing that God's nature is that of love, and it's a love that's expansive and generous, and inclusive a love that's like a man who wants to give a great feast but all his friends back out so he brings in the poor and the crippled and the blind and the lame but there's still room so he scours the countryside it's a love that big so that his house would be full And I remember very specifically the night I realized not only that God is love, but that he loved me. Not only that Christ died for sinners, but he died for me. That the God who gives his all, gave his all for me. And in the language of the parable, I realized that I had been brought to the banquet. Of God's love. And that there's nothing better, there's nothing bigger, there's nothing deeper or longer lasting than the love of God, the feast of the love of God revealed in Jesus. In our chaotic world, this is our anchor, our foundation, our hope, our temporal and eternal security God wants us at his feast God wants you at his feast Which brings me to my second point based on the parable the importance of response to God's generosity First so first the generous host but then the need to respond to the generosity of the host. And I think it's reasonable to see the the lawyers and the Pharisees in our setting, the real-life setting, as those who were invited to the feast but refusing to attend in in the parable. This is what I mean by the parables of Jesus not just floating up in the ether as moral, moralisms or Aesop's fables, but they were like darts. I think Jesus is getting right at his hosts with this story and saying to them, you are refusing the invitation of God. At the very outset of his public ministry, Jesus has, had been clear that the messianic hope of the Jews was being fulfilled in him. It's a very famous section of scripture, Luke chapter 4, where Jesus is in synagogue, and almost like uh, maybe a community this size where it would be like, would anybody like to read the scripture? Like, Jamie read our scripture, and Jesus stood up, and he read the scripture, and it was from Isaiah 61, Verse two, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me by the way, anointed gives us our word Messiah Messiah means anointed one to preach <coughs> excuse me preach good news to the poor, liberty to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed and proclaim the year of the Lord's favor that that was Isaiah uh, Five, 600-year-old text when Jesus read it. And then Jesus continued, today this scripture is being fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus has made absolutely clear. By the way, they got, he, they got really mad at him when he said that. When he said this Isaiah text I just read is being fulfilled. They didn't like that. Jesus, but Jesus was making clear that his mission was messianic. Yet most, not all, but most of the religious establishment refused to embrace. So like the banquet host in the parable, Jesus went to the outcasts, right? Isn't this the story? The establishment said, no, we don't believe you. So Jesus went to those who were lost and hurting and demon-possessed and broken or had dropsy and blessed them, and they responded. They responded. It's as if Jesus in word and deed is saying, the love of God is for all the religious, the irreligious, the insider, the outsider, rich, poor, all are invited to the messianic feast. Everyone, everyone who responds, no ethnic, tribal, religious identity, automatically confirms God's favor. It's the RSVP part. Am I responding to the invitation? And this is why the early church, and I'm going to read it in a second here, Acts chapter 2, saw the gospel of Jesus as the fulfillment of another Old Testament prophecy, a prophecy in the book of Joel. And I'd like to actually take the time to, to read this from Acts chapter 2, and this will conclude my message today. So it's... Acts 2, you may remember, is uh, the disciples are gathered. Jesus has ascended, but the Spirit has not yet been given. Then the Spirit is given, and there's sounds and sights and people gather, and it's like, what is going on here? And Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, men of Judea, and all who dwell in Jerusalem. Let this be known to you and give ear to my word, words. These men are not drunk, as you suppose. Just pause for a second here. I find that both hu- humorous and very interesting. The first observation of the early church, spirit-filled early church, was they must be drinking. They must be drinking. They're drunk. These men are not drunk, says Peter, as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. That's 9 a.m. Peter, obviously, never having been a modern college student because I think... That wouldn't hold up as well. Um, But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. In the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below. This is all Joel. Blood and fire and the vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Everyone. No ethnic, religious, or other identity disqualifies. Everyone who responds calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Paul used that same verse in Romans chapter 10. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. The same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing riches on all who call on him for, quote, Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So I I leave you with two words. If you want two words that I hope kind of capture, sum up my, my message today. The first is inclusion. God's love is inclusive. God loves people, all people, sizes, shapes, ethnicities, whatever, whatever version of human a human is, God loves that person. So first word, inclusion. Second word, decision. Decision. All are invited. All are welcomed. But then the ball's in our court. Will we respond? Let's join our hearts in prayer. Father, thank you for... Uh, the gift of your son Jesus Christ and this, this parable he left with us. Uh, thank you for the picture it gives us, g- gives us of your love for us, your just massively inclusive love, and also for our need to respond, our need to attend the feast, the banquet of your love. Please give us today the grace to do that. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.